This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Sang is one of my favorite outdoor photographers. Over the years, Brett has been a fishing guide, a consultant to hunting companies, and created the Shuttlesnap app. In this episode of Anchored, Brett and I talk about his career choices, inspiration in the outdoors, and the modern-day pressures of killing animals and catching fish for public accolades. Raised in the Midwest. Uh, raised on a farm, so I was raised as a 4-H kid. wasn't a Boy Scout. Uh, Mom and Dad wanted me to have some empathy and understanding for animals and feeding something else, beside, or having the responsibility of something else besides just myself. And honestly, that was a great foundation, and that's that's kind of why we've bought this land to potentially do that with our children. Well, we're definitely going to do it with our children. But what is the Midwest? I always thought that Ohio and Michigan were the Midwest. So I could say, I say Illinois, but if you said, I say Illinois, you're like, well, Southern Illinois, Northern Illinois. I grew up North of Chicago in between Milwaukee and Chicago, right on the line between. And so we're like 10 miles from the Wisconsin border. What do you call Montana? The West? The West. Absolutely. I think anything past, I don't even know if Nebraska's Midwest or not. That might be West too. I would say anything past Iowa would be considered West. But Midwest, you know, Iowa, Michigan, Indiana, Kentucky. Maybe Kentucky's considered the South. I, never I call it, it the like South. That. As a Canadian, to me, Kentucky's the South. Yeah. Well, the bullseye on the dartboard is Illinois when it comes to the Midwest. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> it's right smack dab in the middle of it. I, I thought that you were born and raised out here in Montana. Mm-mm. I spent half my life here. I moved here when I was 18. There's still skid marks in the driveway when we peeled out getting out here. <laughs> 
Seriously. Okay, we'll, 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 get, we'll get to that point. <laughs> but how did you, did you grow up fishing there? Um, yeah, I grew up, we had a little pond in front of our house. We were lucky to have like a little two acre pond and dad would always stock it with largemouth bass for us. And I learned how to, I was always a spin fisherman. My grandfather was the outdoorsman and my dad liked to fish, of course, but I was the kid that was like, of all of the, the siblings, I have a brother and sister. I was like obsessed with it, you know, as a kid. So, and having the pond right there, I could play around with it all I wanted. So it was really my back door. I probably caught all those bass 10 times over, but that's kind of where I learned how to fish. And we had five acres there at the property where whitetail hunting, like on five acres in the Midwest can actually be really, really good. I grew up in a county in Illinois that is archery only. There's no muzzleloader. There's no shotgun, rifle. Ever? No, ever. So, what, what were the politics behind that? Because in the southern portion of the county, it's very, it, it's it's very suburbia. You know, it's just it's just it's just populated. So, having of course, the, the county's got to make a rule for everybody. And up in our rural area, we have we have to be confined to those restrictions. But it was great because the the deer that I grew up like sitting in a tree stand looking at were massive, giant whitetail. I mean, that's they died of car accidents. Right. There wasn't a lot of access to hunt. There wasn't big parcels of land. So it was kind of growing up hunting in suburbia. A little bit, a little bit. I mean, five acres backed up to our county has, actually has a lot of forest preserve. It's like a national monument for our county. You know, there's the, you can take your dog on a walk. You can cross-country ski in there, but you cannot hunt. And so by having those sanctuaries and those preserves and being really close to them, I had a lot to hunt, but only a little bit to access. Okay, that makes sense. It was really unique, you know. As a kid, you grow up, you're like, well, the world's like this. Like, right. Everyone has <laughs> a five-acre place, place where they can deer hunt, and they all have sanctuaries right next to them. And only as I got older did I realize how special that was growing up there. Did your parents hunt as well? Uh, my grandfather hunted both of them, and my dad would go with them once in a while, and they had a lease in Missouri. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, my grandfather, on my mother's side, he was born and raised in, in northern Michigan. And a lot of our family from that side, my, my grandmother, everyone's from northern Michigan Marquette. And so we would go to the North Woods and hunt really dense timber. And I kind of grew up doing that in, in northern Michigan. There's not a lot of deer up there, unfortunately. but In Michigan? Yeah, northern or northern Michigan. Michigan. Why northern is, Michigan. When I was in Michigan, it seemed like there were deer everywhere. So maybe it's because I wasn't far north? Well, I think the dynamic of that place has changed, and I don't know the, the the details of why, but I can tell you that it's just there's very very few deer. Anyone that that know that has been up there in that neck of the woods, like finding a legal buck is like a big deal. Why do you think that is up there? Oh, man, I know now there's a, a large pronounced wolf population that's become a problem. And, and growing up as a kid, going up there to visit, there was black bears once in a while. You'd hear a story like a camp down the road saw a black bear this year, but now they see them on the regular. So Predation? that could be part of it. Yeah, that could be part of it. Um, yeah, coyote populations, you know, prey, predator populations kind of, they, they climb and they fall, they climb and they fall. So it might just be on, on the fall, on the swing, you know? Mm-hmm. Who knows? In 10 years, it might be great deer hunting. Right now, it's, yeah, it, it's historically been pretty poor up there. Gotcha. For deer densities. So the skid marks, what yeah. happens here? <laughs> well, um, born and raised in the Midwest, mom was a bronze artist. Are any of the sculptures upstairs, are those from your mom? Yeah, the one Adelaide was playing with. I, my mother and I made that last year. No way, yeah. really? Yeah, and then the other, the elk browns is my mother's, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, she's amazing at what she does. And she mostly uh, focused on equestrian. She had a lot of equine, uh, she had... Um, thoroughbreds, a lot of cowboy postures. She's great with people too. She can do 
beautiful, beautiful portraits of people. And she's done a number of those. It, it was just contract work. She was noticed for her work. She, of course, started on spec and people started to notice her work. And then she would get contracted out to do certain things. And so she ended up doing a lot of the governor's cups for thoroughbred racing in mm-hmm. Illinois. And so, yeah, she kind of made her name for that. And as a kid, I would play, we would go and do like a paper mache classes and stuff like that, you know? And and I was the one of the three of us, I think, that spent a little more time like paying attention to my mom. And, and maybe that's where the artist in me comes from, especially with photography. Yeah. I think the creativity is, is sparked from my mother. And as a kid, I remember playing with Play-Doh while she was doing her bronzes made out of clay. So she starts with the clay and then the process is, uh, there's a four-step process that ends up being a bronze sculpture. What about dad? Dad, um, he took over the family printing business in Skokie, Illinois. He did it for 35 years. He got out of it when the internet and Kinko's was starting to kick some ass. So uh, he stepped out at the right time, I think. And now he's a horse trader. He buys and sells quarter horses. Wow. He's literally a horse trader. He's hilarious. Is that why you guys moved to Montana then? Um, Well, mom and dad were coming out here to have mom would get her bronzes, her clay molds made into bronze here in in Bozeman and then also in Kalispell. So we kind of split our time every year going between Kalispell to Whitefish to ski in the wintertime. And she'd use a foundry up there. And then once in a while, she'd also use the Bozeman one. And as I got closer to going to college, it was like, they were trying to sell me on Montana, right? So they're like, mm. hey, we're going to go to Bozeman. We're going to get a bronze made there. You're going to ski Big Sky. And we should check out Montana State University. So of course, being 17 and wanting to snowboard a lot, I was like, yeah, I'm into that. And they just prayed for snow like no other from the Midwest, right? They're like, <laughs> give this kid a two-foot day, please. <laughs> and so that's what they got. We got here and it was an epic skiing trip. And I'm like, yep, I'm coming to college here. And at the time, I don't know what the requirements are now, but it was like you needed a heartbeat to get into Montana State University. Okay. I applied and like I got in some other colleges that I, I considered in Illinois, and they really wanted me to go west. They're like, you're going to learn a lot about yourself if you just get away from us. And good on them, man. I don't know how I'd feel about like, I, I hear about it from parents all the time, like the empty nest syndrome where they're like, they don't want them to go too far, you know, where my parents were like, you're going to learn a lot about yourself if you leave here. Get out of our house. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. But you're close with your parents. Absolutely. I remember getting sick for the first time in college. It was like really nerve wracking. Just had a simple cold, you know, or stomach flu. And it was like, mom's not here to help me. You know, Aww. you can't admit that to your buddies. You're 18. You're like, you know, invincible. You're like, sure. I'm the toughest guy on planet Earth. Yeah. But I'm sick and I don't know what to do. Did you miss your mom? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I miss her now. Oh, yeah, I love it. She's amazing. So they got their own thing going on back there at home with... They got, we board and raise quarter horses there. That's what we do. And uh, between them raising quarter horses and boarding them, they just have so much responsibility there with livestock that they can't get out here as much as they want to. But they try to make it out at least once a year. All right. Yeah. So let's talk about who you are and why you're here. Mm-hmm. You are probably best known as a professional photographer. I mean, that's your career. You are a professional photographer. Yeah. At this point, yes. I mean, I always think of you as like this badass fishing guy and, and guy duh, and hunter. And like, I, I feel like you're multi-talented, but if people recognize your name, what's it typically from? Is it from photos? I would say at, the, at this point, yeah, absolutely. In the hunting industry. What did you take in college? Did you take photography? I did. I did. I took a class from Rachel Launder. I'll never forget her because she told me to go look and change my major. She hated my composition. She thought I was a terrible photographer. <laughs> I took film there. And, and of course, being 19 years old, you're like, okay, if you think I suck, then I guess I suck. Oh, no. So, so I changed my major. To what? Environmental science. Okay. Oh, and graduated right. with that. Only later on did I, I was like, you know, like, I think you might be wrong. I can see what's going on here. And, and just playing around with photography. I'm self-taught with it for the most part. I did get to mentor underneath 
an amazing photographer. He's still one of my favorite lifestyle photographers in the outdoor industry. What's Brian, his name? Brian Grossenbacher. Oh, of course. And so I got to spend a lot of time with him. Um, I met him at Bridger Bull. He was the events coordinator at the time and an outfitter in Bozeman. This was before he was shooting professionally. And uh, I was working as a trout fishing guide. I just learned that you can make money rolling people down the river. And I was like, yeah, I'm in. I want that. And so I was doing that in the summertime. And I asked Brian if I could take a job with him and, and take some of his clients. And, and he said, absolutely. And he gave me, I asked him, I remember being so nervous asking him for what I wanted to be paid. And he said, yeah, ab- absolutely. If you feel you're worth that, then yeah, I'll pay you that. Wow. You yeah. know, I've never met him, but he's, I hear great things. Yeah. He's a, such a creative guy. Such a candid I can talk about that in a minute, but anyways, Brian, Brian and I started, I was guiding for him and then he was starting, he was writing a book with his wife, Jenny, and they were writing a book about Montana rivers and Jenny and him were looking into like, you know, stock photography for that. And they're like, man, this is really expensive. Why don't I just go out there and shoot this myself? And I think that's, I correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but I think that's how he got his start as far as like seeing his own creativity with it. And as he became more known for his work and me guiding for him, he was around me a lot because we do a lot of multi-boat trips. And so Brian and I would get together and I don't know if I had a good cast or he just liked my candidness with it, but he's like, hey, why don't you come on a couple modeling trips for me? And we started locally right around here. And it just worked out that I could see kind of what he wanted to do. You know, I, I understand light. I kind of understand um, candidness, not being nervous. And, you know, that's what a photographer wants you to do is just candidly be yourself. That's what they want to capture. And Brian's great at that. And I guess we got really good, really fast together. And so I got to go all over the world with him and shoot for Sims. And we did some stuff for Orvis. And but you're behind, you are in front of the camera at this point. I'm in front of the camera. You're yeah. a model, which by the way, we are going to talk about. Yeah. Just doing the blue steel thing, you know? You think I'm kidding, but I'm serious. We are going to talk about it. But continue. I just had, a, I guess Brian saw something in me that, you know, he's like, you're, you're so candidly original with being in front of my camera. It's really easy. I have an easy time shooting photos of you. And if you can bear with me on these, some of these shoots, I think we can have a lot of fun together. And you can see some places that you, at this point in your life, at 22, you're probably not going to be able to afford to go to. So that, yeah, my first tarpon, all these trips for Spoonfish, baby tarpon, all sorts of different species I got to fish with Brian and the places I got to fish more than species. But um, I just had a great time kind of mentoring underneath him. I was really shy to ask him any questions about photography. Yeah, because you didn't want to, I would imagine you didn't want to look like you were encroaching on his space. Yeah. So how did you balance that? Like it's kind of tricky, right? So there were certain things that I I could notice. There's, there's things that I picked up about Brian that I didn't even have to ask. You know, the guy's always got a camera near or in his hand at all times when you're out there collecting work. Is he fishing as well or just shooting? No, just shooting. And that's another thing that I learned very early in the game is like, if you're going to fish, then fish. Put the camera away. Don't put it down. Put it away and fish. Be a fisherman. And if you're going to be a photographer, be a photographer. But if you try to do both at the same time, you're going to be kind of half-assed at this. And that's what I, I absolutely hold that up true to this day, you know, and that's also speaking a lot about just having balance in general, but Brian was really good at pronouncing that for me and like showing me that if you're going to shoot, shoot. And if you're going to fish, fish. So Brian was behind the camera. I'm in front of it. I'm getting to experience all these places. We have a lot of fun. He's hilarious. So we just had a lot of fun for a number of years until he kind of, I mean, I saw his lifestyle. He inspired me, you know? And so I thought to myself, like, well, no matter how this goes, I think at the end of the day, Brian's going to say, I mean, how can I blame this young kid to see my lifestyle and say, I don't want to be like that. 
And so from what I learned from him and getting out and shooting my own photography, I started to kind of see some new angles and some new light to some situations. And he even admitted to it. Um, I wouldn't let him not admit it, but there's a couple different photos that I, I would show him and I was so shy to show him, but like, Brian, what do you think about this one? He'd be like, dude, how did you get this? And he would be like, this is a really like, this is an original shot. This is awesome. Like, can you like tell me more about it? And so we'd sit down and we'd just kind of talk shop once in a while. And then I just got to a certain point where I'm like, I'm going to go for this. I'm going to try to make it happen. And it was all spec, right? So at the time in my life, I was in a relationship that ended. It was really hard on me. I have some amazing friends that are that started to be, you know, you know how this goes. They are their clients in the beginning, and then they become really close friends. And it's an amazing relationship that you end up having with them where like if they do come to fish, great. But if they don't, they can come hang out or you just get to see them randomly and they end up being your friends, but you never would have met them without having a fly rod in, in common. And so I had a friend invite me to go to New Zealand and he, he was living in Sydney at the time. He was working for Macquarie Bank and he said, you need to get out of there. You're looking depressed, which I was, I was down. And he's like, let's, you know, get over here. Let's go fishing. You know, you pick the rivers, you pick the place. I front the bill, get over here. And Jay saved my life in that way. You know, he's like, he, he basically gave me the biggest excuse ever to like, okay, I'm going to go over there. I'm going to spend not only like two weeks with Jay, but I'm going to stay there for a month and a half. And I'm going to travel around. I had another friend going there to surf at the time and uh, grabbed some wetsuits, grabbed a bunch of fly fishing gear, and we went over there and surfed and fished. And um, I just shot lifestyle photography for a month and a half and came back with the really the portfolio that, that I pushed out to the world and said, here I am. Here's my brand. This is what I do. And that was the beginning of it. It was 2013 when that happened. I was just going to say, when, or ask when it was. Mm-hmm. 2013. So yeah. what do you guys think about today, 2018, 19 in like two weeks? Actually, by the time this airs, it'll be 2019. Nowadays, it feels like everybody is a quote unquote professional photographer. Is it as hard as it looks being a photographer? Is the industry suffering because of all these people calling themselves photographers and selling their work for not a lot of money? that's an interesting dynamic that's happening, right? Technology is advanced cameras to the point now where you just have to really be there. It's not to say that you don't have to have composition. You still got to understand what you're doing with the camera. But I think it's, I, I think it's actually, it's helping tell the story better. It's like, you're really, if you want to stand out, you have to tell a story. And visually telling a story, showing a paramount moment, you know, trying to paint a picture for what happens after and then try to kind of, it, it, it inspire some kind of thought before and then show this paramount moment in the situation that's not easy to do and then to do it repetitively that's really hard it takes it's still the 10,000 hour rule you still got to shoot photos for 10,000 hours before you can call yourself an expert at what you do like anything else i really believe in that 10,000 hour rule so i think it's awesome that people are picking up their cameras and going out there and and showing the world what what they love i i don't know about the direction of social media in some ways, I think it's really inspiring. But in other ways, I think it's gluttony and abuse, you know, and, and, and just vain. You know what I mean? So I, I struggle with that sometimes myself. So I don't know. Like, I have no idea where it's going to go. I, I, I'm, I'm dead serious about that. I don't have a clue where this is all going. But is there any resentment out there? I mean, I, I, I don't feel it in you, but I do feel it in some photographers. Is it is it starting to overwhelm the photography industry in this space that there are so many people into it now? It's diluting. 
it's diluting things, right? Um, it can dilute the price for sure. I mean, people can give away their work in the beginning if they want to, but are you going to be known as the person that gives away your work? Is that what your brand is? Like, I'm going to go to Brett Sang because it's free every time, and he just I he get, I give him a couple pairs of socks from our company, or a pair of waders, or a fly rod. That doesn't pay your mortgage. I mean, everyone's situation is different. Maybe they don't even need the money. Maybe they're just looking for identity purposes. I just want to be a photographer and give myself something to do because I have income coming from something else. And that could be anything. There's, there's a number of different ways, and I think every situation is original. But for guys out there trying to pay their mortgage like myself, yeah, it can be a little diluting and, and frustrating at times. But at the same time, I really think that we are our own biggest enemy. And if you really want something in life, you just have to go out there and, and just grab it by the balls. Grab it by the absolute balls. <laughs> Which you've both done. Of <laughs> both, both of them. Both of them. Both of them. Now you've done that. You're working, tell me where you're at now. Who are you working for? Currently, I'm working in the hunting industry, working for, in my opinion, the two best companies I could possibly work for. Matthews Archery out of Sparta, Wisconsin. Fantastic technology. Every year that company is blowing my mind with what they're coming out with. Every year a box of, you know, the bow shows up and you're like, okay, it's a prototype. What's this? I mean, are you really going to change something for me? What, what have I not seen already? And every year they raise the bar. They really do. Um, I'm blown away with, with their brains because I'm not an engineer, right? So like that, that's not me. And so I'm the creative. So I pull this bow out of a box and I shoot it and I'm like, how did you make this bow better than last year's bow? Because I love, that was my favorite bow you've ever made. Love the company. They've done a great job. They've always allowed me to like have my own creativity and they've never asked me to sacrifice my integrity and I'll stick with them. You know, they're, they're amazing. I work for Sika Gear. There's been a lot of change in that company over the years and I see it progress and I want to, every year I want to be more of a part of it. I think that we are just getting to the point where we can really truly stand on two feet and define who we are and express that. And to articulate that through everyone in the company and to be on the same page is a really good feeling. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you're not just submitting photos. I mean, you're going into the office, you're having meetings. You guys are, you, you, work, you fully work with them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, right. we're very involved with what direction, what, what our ethos is, our why. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's really important to have that. Otherwise, everyone has their own direction or our own thought of how they want to you know, brand something. And if everyone has like a, has their own ideal ideology of what they want to do with, with a company or what direction they want to go with it, I, I think you, you're just going to end up butting heads more than you're going to make steps forward. And I think we've really just got to that point where we're all like making steps together in one big strong line. Do you know what I mean? I do, yeah. I've got two questions for you, and they're both going to go in different directions here. What you were saying about the Matthews bows is really interesting to me because I actually just interviewed Jim Barchi from Scott Rods. Okay. So if they're getting better every year, Jim and I were talking about how fly rods don't necessarily get better every year. So when I ever, whenever I see a company, even a bow company, saying that they're putting out you know the new next best thing, I always kind of roll my eyes. Am I seeing things, or in fly fishing, is it not necessarily that it's always newer and better? Because I can see with bows, I mean, you look at a compound bow and you see all the different components to it. You you can see why lighter materials in certain areas, or I mean, I'm I'm not you know a bow dork enough to be able to really break down why certain components are better than others. But I can see with just how busy they are that there is room for improvement. But what about in fly rods? I don't know. I don't know if I'm attached to it that much anymore. With fly fishing, to me, April, sometimes I I, I got kind of 
it's a fly rod's utilitarian to me. You know what I mean? Like I don't get attached to vehicles. Like they're just a, that's it's wheels. It gets me from point A to point B. Yeah. I drive a Ford F-150. I might drive a Toyota Tundra next time. I don't know. Is it, is it better? I don't know, but it gets me from point A to point B and doesn't break down with a fly rod. You know, like I can feel the difference in fly rods, but not enough to really, it's like, I'm not a wine connoisseur either. Thank God, because they get really expensive. Yeah, I get and really I get confused taste- by the by the wine connoisseurs in fly fishing because I don't get it. I, I mean, I don't know. I break a tip top and I go, "Oh, that sucks." Where's the next rod? Exactly. And I wonder sometimes if, and but I also drive my Ford into trees, and I really don't give a shit. And I've got friends who are like, "Oh my God, my wife would freak out." How are you not freaking out? And I'm going because the four wheels all still have air in them, and I'm still here, and that's all that matters. Right. So I just wonder sometimes if I'm too far removed, specifically in fly fishing, because I can, I know the people to maybe get a new one or I've got the epoxy to fix my rod and I just don't know if it's that we're so close to the industry that could be it that could be it but you're close to the hunting industry and you're saying that you can see the difference and you appreciate the difference in bows every year I think the dynamic like the change that's happening the dynamic range of of archery and the compound bows especially is changing a lot more in the last 20 years than and I gotta say fly fishing has too but there are so many differences there. There's so much going on with a compound bow compared to a fly rod. You know, one graphite to the next, one flex to another. One lot, one line feels differently on this flex compared to another line on that. I mean, there's a lot going on, but ultimately with fly rods, I think of it as very utilitarian. It's like, I need this hammer to hit that nail, yeah. <laughs> right? And I don't care what hammer it is, just give me it. I just got to make sure I hit the nail. And so with a cast, it's like, I just put it upon myself to make the cast. You right. Know? But and that's also because you're an excellent caster. I've seen a lot of people who are like, oh, I can't fish for it because I don't have my Sage One. You know, oh, that's a, that's a Loomis cross current. It's too, I, I, I'm not used to that action. I won't be able to make the cast. And I think a lot of that is just simply that maybe they're not as talented on a fly rod. Totally. And confidence and any excuse. I've had clients tell me that they need that rod for the hopper. I'm like, right. why can't you just <laughs> yeah. throw it with this? Just make it work. Just learn it. Yeah. And being a fly fishing guide, I think, has helped me a lot with that as far as everybody that comes in the boat usually has different gear. And so I'm like, do you mind at lunch while you slam that sandwich that I throw that rod? I've never thrown it before. And so that, I think that's where I learned how to like tell the difference. And what the conclusion that I came with is, is like, this is a hammer and that's the nail and I need to make the cast. That's yeah. that. You know, and do I have a preference from one rod to the next? Absolutely. Um, But that's over time and trial and error. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't know. Like with, with archery, it's different. You're making a cast to fool a fish. You know, you're just, it's a big joke. (laughs) That's how I'd call it anyways. They don't eat it. They can't take the joke. Um, (laughs) But with hunting, I'm responsible for cleanly killing this animal. And that's what we're doing. You know, I hear the word harvest a lot. I'm kind of go back and forth with it. No, we're we're killing. We're killing something. Yeah. And and to do it cleanly is really, really important to, it should be important to everybody. It's extremely important to me because I've been on the other side of it mm-hmm. where I haven't cleanly killed something. And as time goes on and that feeling never wears away of your guilt over that, you take it upon you to be as responsible as you possibly can. So these are pieces of equipment for helping us kill an animal so that we can eat organic meat that we know exactly where it comes from. And so that's really important to me, right? So, What has Matthew's done over the last couple of years to improve what already was a great product? I think they've read their market. They've read their market and they've listened to their audience and say, this is what they need. 
you know, two years ago, last year we put out uh, the Triax. Now that's a bow that can be taken big game hunting. Absolutely. But we built, they built it for whitetail hunters, you know, that the whitetail market needed a new bow. They wanted a bow that was fast, that was accurate, that was forgiving at the same time. And, um, was, was compact and getting the tree stand in and out, no problem. And they listened to their audience. Their audience wanted a bow that was shorter axle to axle and they made it for them. You know, they, they kind of, it's not that they put the big game guys off to the side. They said, you can go hunting big game with it, but our audience this year is for, for whitetail hunters. And then this year is more of an all around bow that they, they read their audience and said, Hey, I want to go not only whitetail hunting with my tracks, but I want to take it on my moose hunt. And, okay, great. Well, what's the problem? Well, the only problem is, is that, you know, I set my whitetail bow up for 60 pounds and I go whitetail hunting because I like to draw smooth. I just, I feel more comfortable drawing 60 pounds smoothly at a whitetail at close encounter out of a tree stand than I would if I'm drawing back on a moose. But I don't feel like it has the umph. So I've been playing around with different arrows, yada, 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 Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Basically this year they've, they've, I mean, Matt is, I'm not just saying Matt, I mean, Matt and his whole entire team over at Matthews has built a bow that you could take on a moose hunt one week, come back, change the mods out, not the limbs, and change the weight of the bow to adjust keeping your arrows. Maybe you're, I actually built one of these bows. I have two sights. I, I just, the tapes are correct for each one of them, but I can put the bow at 75 pounds in five minutes and then later put it to five minutes later, I can put it at 60 pounds for my whitetail hunt, put a different slider on it. But you need to change your sight out though, right? I just need to change the sight out. That's it. The dovetail comes in and out. I change my sight out and everything's accurate. See, that would be so nice. Absolutely. I mean, for me, it's a I'm, versatile bow. I'm right? limited because I draw at 50 and, and it's hard for me to, I mean, I could probably, I could probably get to 60, but I don't have that sort of, of range. Like I'm not going to be looking for a bow that shoots 35 and 50. So do women um, fall in, into a different, I mean, what do most women draw at 50? I think all women should draw what they're comfortable drawing. Okay. Like Allie draws 47 pounds and that's as comfortable as she feels that she can draw. So I don't need to try to draw at 60? No. Because it's, it's, it sounds really heavy. No, I think if you're drawing 50 pounds, that's absolutely adequate. Absolutely. She's at 47. She had a clean pass through this year on her bull elk. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't have been more impressed with the bow. But men are going, I mean, you guys are shooting sometimes at 50 and sometimes at 75. That's a major difference. Yeah, absolutely. It just depends on what you're comfortable doing. Sure. And and it's a preference thing, right? So like, like a lot of guys set up a 70-pound bow and they go whitetail hunting with it. They go axis deer hunting with it. And then they might go on a moose hunt with that. Okay. So it's totally, it's, it's preference. Just, it's preference, but having, you know what... <laughs> The American way is is uh, accommodating and versatility, right? We right. want have a lot of options. We love we want to go in Home Depot and pick from forty different hammers. Sure, they all have a purpose. Right. But I think Matthews is really. I think they've they've said this isn't a niche bow. This is like a bow that you can change the weight from depending on what you're comfortable with. Sure. If you're comfortable drawing seventy five pounds and you want that double, you want full penetration, pass through shot on a bull moose. Here you go. And by the way, if you don't feel comfortable drawing that 75 pounds for a whitetail in a tree stand, we have mods with an Allen key. You can change these out and you can put, bring your bow back down to 65 or 60 pounds, whatever you want. Right. Because it's the limb power, right? You know, the bow is made from 40 to 50, 50 to 60, 60 to 70. This bow is saying that you can go on five pound increments and make it what you want, what you're comfortable shooting. Yeah. And that's the most important thing, I think, is that. May, like they've listened to their audience and said, we want you guys to feel so confident with this bow. Here's how we've micro-tuned it 
to allow you to have the ultimate comfortability when it comes to shooting it. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, My second question for you was a little bit more controversial. In hunting, if they said to you, we want to put you on camera and we want you to go out and kill an animal a month, would you do it? No. No. Okay, let's talk about it. Why not? I can't eat an animal a month. And we we don't need to hunt for sustenance anymore. I don't have a family of 10 to feed an animal a month to. So what do you think nowadays the people on social media and on television who are killing all of these animals with the excuse of, uh, I mean, it could be something as simple as we're feeding it to a homeless shelter or it could be, oh, it's dog food or, I mean, or, 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 right? They're also, or we're taking it out of the gene pool or they hide behind the conservation shield. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons to justify killing, but at the end of the day, if that camera was not rolling, would you take the shot? I went on record to say I would never be sponsored in hunting because I don't want to feel pressure to kill an animal. Sure. But I'm also not a very handsome man who looks good in front of the camera, who's in the industry. And I just wonder sometimes if you've ever faced that sort of integrity battle where people have asked for you to be in that position. The companies I work for don't ask me to do that. So it's all about your integrity, right? There's a, there's a million ways to make a living. You know, and there's one way to keep your integrity, and that's the most important part of that. I've, I've, I've messed that up before, and okay. I messed it up one time in my life, and I'll never do it again. What was that in fishing, hunting? No, just in in my personal life. You know, mm-hmm. like at the end of the day, when things went south, I didn't know who I was because I was trying to be somebody different. And I'll never forget that was a paramount moment in my life. It was the hardest moment in my life. Ironically, those things kind of always seem to go hand in hand, right? It seems like they do, anyways. If I was asked to hunt an animal once a month for the entire year, I mean, I think let's go back further. I think what you said earlier: people justify to kill. That's that. That was the statement. Is why are you doing this? You know, do you do you need do you need to kill something, or are you trying to feed yourself? Sustenance hunting is out the window here in the United States. We don't need to eat. We don't need to kill to eat. Uh, there's lots of packaged meat at the grocery store. I personally believe that. My personal belief behind it is, I want to know where my meat comes from. I don't want to wonder where this packaged meat comes from. So I like to go out and harvest it myself. I like to go kill an animal to put it in my freezer so that I know exactly from ground to freezer exactly what happened. I enjoy that control and I enjoy the process of that. You know, everything from cutting the meat up, understanding just the anatomy of an animal. For the people out there that are killing for a living, I think they struggle with it. They got to. I'm a romantic, so I want to think that they have a part of them that's like, man, is this right? Am I doing this right? But they're also trying to create a brand around themselves. And so I can understand that, you know, and if they become the guy that's just really like just a killer, 
You're just a total predator and that's what you do. It's how do they get away from that? Because if they stop killing as much, are they going to be, is it their brand anymore? And some of those people might have gone down that road and maybe realized this isn't really what I want to do, but I don't know their personal struggle. I can tell you that I don't want to be that person, but ultimately, what can I do to control that? I think what I don't want to see is that people are inspired by that and they want to continue to do that. So that's the thing that I struggle with is like, so you're going to make an impact on the world. And now we have this platform that we can, we can reach out to the entire world with our phones. You're going to make an impact. Is it an impact that you're going to be proud of later on in life that you're inspiring some child to grow up and say, I want to be like you, but, and then you're 60 going, no, 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 no. I made a mistake when I was in my thirties to do that. And I, I really don't feel that way now. I don't think people are as intentional with social media or just announcing to the world who they are, what what their why is, and they don't think about it. And again, the romantic in me wants to think that at some point in their life, they're going to realize that. I'm very conscientious of it now for myself. I think my success has come from that. I think that people in the industry have noticed that, and they ultimately trust me with their product or their company, with the face of it or visualizing it, because they know my integrity. And so... Whatever your integrity is, I think you really got to think of it and you got to define who you are and what you believe in and then go with it. I mean, there's there's always going to be people out there that do that, I think, unfortunately. What do you think is the parallel between fly fishing and that? Is us taking pictures and grip and grinning? Is that that equivalent in our world, in the catch and release world, which is a whole other subject in itself? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, you can think about it a thousand different ways of what their motives are. But if you're that person out there catching 20 fish a day, 20 yeah. trout a day, and you've got to post every single one of those fish. I think fish. the world's vain. I think the people are vain. Unfortunately, we have to have affirmation by complete strangers. Isn't that kind of sad? It's disgusting, actually. Yeah, it is. It is. And where is the affirmation of just yourself saying that this is good enough for me? I've gotten to that point. You know, I, <laughs> I don't know if they, they want to hear it, but... I put my camera away a lot more than I probably should. Well, I was going to ask you, do you feel like you can control any of that to some degree? Because at the end of the day, let's say that you're on an elk hunt. I mean, I know that you're going to capture the entire experience. You're a photographer. But do you feel more weight upon yourself to capture the experience than the actual kill itself? Yeah, I have. like my What I define by going out there and saying, I'm going to tell this story. I want to tell it from everything from frozen bootlaces to packing out the neck meat, which is the pain in the ass. We got four quarters, back straps. It might be another trip if we pack the neck meat out, but that's your responsibility. Take the neck meat with you. Why or, would someone not want to take the neck meat? It's so good. Inconvenience, I don't know. I, you know yeah, there's all People sorts are of... uneducated on how good that meat can be. Sure. You know? But there's also, there's, there's an amazing advocacy for like holistically thinking about what organic meat brings to you. And there's people out there like Steve Rinella that are, bringing back a tongue and boiling a tongue. We went back to the Midwest this this fall and hunted our farm. So I, it was nostalgic for me to go back there and sit in a tree stand. I, the same tree I sat in since I was 11. And I try to make it in once a year to see my family, of course, but also go in that tree and really think about my entire life. And oh, there's nothing else to do for If you're sitting all day, sitting for a whitetail is pretty tough. But my my aunt's partner asked me for the tongue. And I was like, really? You, you want... Really, I would never guess that you even want a piece of the backstrap, let alone the tongue. He's like, no, I saw Steve and Ronella oh, cool. on Mediator eat the tongue, and I'd really like to try it. And I was like, right then and there, I'm like, that just justifies exactly why people are out there being great advocates for 
thinking about things differently. And yeah, there's people that leave neck meat behind, but there's also people that inspire people to look at another piece of meat on an animal and say, I would like to try that. It's true. And for those of you listening right now, thinking about tongues, um, I grew up on cod's tongues. You know, that's a real newfy thing. Cod's tongues, deep fried, dipped in ketchup, so good. So those of you who fish but don't hunt, you can eat tongue. Just that it can come from a fish. Um, but yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. You know, that would be a, a light on moment for sure. Yeah. And there's the other side of that, right? You have to think of both sides. So mm-hmm. yeah, I can, we can sit here and like get all down and sappy about like, oh man, the world's falling apart and, you know, people are exploiting things. But on the other side, people are being really inspirational. And it's no wonder that he's, that Stephen Ronella has gotten this, the fame that he has because he's been such a great advocate for what we do. Yeah, yeah, I definitely feel more inspired these days than anything when it comes to that. What I am a little down and out on with fishing, you know, it's been a little bit more of a of a, why are we catch and releasing? Why are we not keeping our fish? Sort of struggle. That's kind of the the big um, obstacle for me these days that I'm looking at. So, are you feeling like catch and release is mean? Not mean. I think that a lot of things are mean. Yeah. I mean, I think putting a put a stressing out a fish and then putting it back in the water to. Well, I just or don't. Do you think it'd be cleaner to kill it? I think I would just rather eat it. Right. You know, and I've always would rather eat it, but I just I would selfishly want my day to extend for ten hours, and I wouldn't want to take home you know that many fish. Right. Or with steelhead, you just couldn't take home that many fish. I don't know if it's mean. I think that it's unnecessary with fisheries that can't handle it. I've always I've always not fished fisheries that can't handle the pressure, but I've never been in a situation where I've been looking at a species as a whole. Going, geez, I don't know if you guys can handle this. Right. And unfortunately, we're in a culture that quantifies an experience, right? So catching two bone fish was, you know, it's, it's a slow day. Why? You caught, you went out there and succeeded at what you tried to do. We count the first one. I tell my clients that all the time. Yeah. How many do we caught today? Uh, one, I think. I counted the first one. After yeah. that, I don't think about <laughs> that's a, it. Hey, that's a good one. I'm going to use that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, see where that goes with you. Yeah, it's kind of a passive aggressive way of saying shut up and cast. <laughs> do you miss guiding? Uh, no, I still do it. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. What's your company called? Uh, Rome Outfitters. Can we talk about what it is that you've got going on with the app? With Shuttlesnap? Yeah. I am trying to get it out there so people understand what it is and why they should use it. But is um, it live? Can people use it right now? Yeah, they can use it during the season, right? Like Ta- so. This- tell us all about it. Start from the beginning because a lot of people don't know what we're talking about right now. So. Yeah, because river shuttles, you know, they're. I get clients that are like, "Are we gonna like pull the boat back up to the truck?" And it, it's just a naive question, right? They've I mean, never seen it before. They don't understand. So yeah, yeah. So start from just so explaining what a been. shuttle is. Um, so a river shuttle. We're gonna get in a river. We gotta float from point A to point B. But we drop the truck off, or we put the boat in the water and we part the truck, and we gotta get back to the truck. How are we gonna do that? We're gonna float it away from the truck for eight miles, ten miles, whatever. There are shuttle companies out there that are willing to come in, pick up your vehicle, and drive it carefully down to the takeout so that when you arrive at your destination, point B, um, you can get in your truck, you know, back it up, take the, take the boat and go. And part of the experience of going fishing with somebody is the car ride's a big deal, you know, like catching up with somebody and spending that one-on-one time with them or, you know, usually sometimes three people go fishing in a drift boat anyways. And so we are in like drift boat capital of the world, right? Montana, Bozeman, Montana, fly fishing Mecca, the drift boat capital for sure. We need the river shuttle companies around here do a, a great job of moving our vehicles as very reliable companies. Unfortunately, it takes a phone call to get them on the phone. And you look into the, what I, I did some research before shuttle snap was launched of why is text messaging so popular? 
and it's because it's a it's a selfish action. It's a it's a one sided action. I text you, and when you have time, you answer it, and then the conversation goes back and forth. But a phone call requires both of our time, which we get voicemails a lot. It, it takes a lot more commitment to have to have communication two way via phone. And so with shuttles, it was like everyone's calling at the same time to book a shuttle at eight thirty in the morning. And I was noticing, I was just for years, I was getting voicemails for the shuttle companies. They're just, they're, they're on the phone constantly driving and talking at the same time, writing down on a notepad. So I'm envisioning the shuttle drivers driving with one hand, looking at the road, looking at a notepad, writing down the license plate, getting their information. And it's redundant information, right? You have to say it every time. I'm Brett saying my truck is, my license is, key is here. And so honestly, my shuttle got messed up on the upper Madison one day and I'm like, this is it. Like, there's got to be a better way for this. And so that was where the idea spawned. And I followed up with it, which I'm very proud of myself for, right? You have a lot of great ideas in your life, but a lot of them you don't go through with. And I've had plenty of them that I haven't followed through with, but I will pat myself on the back for that, of like having this idea and pushing it out there. And so we built an online, basically a responsive design website that has a wrapper. So you can find it, a wrapper app is what we call it where you can find it in iTunes, you can find it on Google Play, and you can download this website link, basically, to, we, we did that for a number of different reasons, to not go a native app, and I don't want to bore you with those details, but basically this is the fastest way we can get people to interact with ShuttleSnap and have a reliable booking service where you can make an account, put your vehicle's information in there, put your buddy's vehicle information in there, save it, save your credit card if you want, very reliable, very safe platform for people to book shuttles, and they have text confirmation. So once the shuttle provider receives that you've requested a shuttle, they click and confirm it. That ultimately brings it back to them on their phone as a text message. When they have time to answer it, they can go through their dashboard, accept it. That sends back another confirmation text to the customer that's booking the shuttle. And basically you have this feel-good feeling of like, oh, the shuttle's, the, the shuttle's done. And I've paid with a credit card. I've built miles, whatever. And it's just a, it's a way faster, cleaner way of, of booking a shuttle, period. There's no argument for that. No, and it's just Montana? Uh, no, Montana. We have some in Idaho, Washington, uh, Wyoming. I'm trying to get Wyoming, but cell range is still an issue, right? You still mm-hmm. have to have cell range to book the shuttle through Shuttle Snap. So I haven't alleviated that problem, but I think at some point in our lives, we're going to say, Do you remember when we didn't have cell range? Any? You know, like, yeah. that's going to be a part of our life at some point. It's like, you know, Cell towers are everywhere. Yeah. Do you have to pay for the app? Nope. It's free. Jeez. So you can use the service for free. You can make a phone call and try to get them on the phone, or you can just use the app. I love it. This is fantastic. What's cool about the direction of it is eventually, if enough people are using, we can have an accuracy where we can release a traffic report where people can go on there and find out where people are floating to alleviate the pressure, right? What I run into is I drive to the river, and I'm like, I'm going to go from Mill Creek to Pine. And so I get over there on the Yellowstone, I get to Mill Creek and there's 20 vehicles there. Well, to drive to the next access is going to take another 10 minutes and I really want to get in the water. Like the day's burning away. And to have a traffic report where you can say, hey, Mill Creek's got 10, Pine Creek's got six, but way down low on the Yellowstone, Otter has one boat right now. If we had enough people using Shuttle Snap, we can release it. A traffic report that would alleviate the pressure and push people out, like give them a chance to find the serene experience that they're trying to have in Montana. The last thing you want to do is come out to Montana, float the Yellowstone, and have a, like a boat on every shoulder. 
it's getting to the point around here, April, where I need rear view, like side mirrors on my drift boat so I can set the anchor and say, yeah, I can pull up now and yeah. just slide back out there. And good for the industry, right? Good for fly fishing. We're succeeding. Like there's a lot of people out there that care about it. And so I think it's a good thing that people are out there experiencing fly fishing. I think it's a bad thing that they're posting every single fish they catch. I think it's given an unrealistic expectation for people to go out there and experience it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed that a lot in the years. It's like people kind of like, this isn't a vending machine. You don't pop a quarter and out pops a Coke. Like you have to cast, you have to set the hook. Everything has to happen perfectly. And you know, if you're lucky, you catch a fish. It's funny though, you know, just kind of on a tangent there. It's yeah, I'm sorry to no, no, it's all right. But you know, I had made the decision I was going to stop posting a lot of fish photos. Yeah, but I recently had a meeting and was informed that I'm becoming irrelevant, (laughs) like because I'm not showing pictures of me with fish, and so it's a constant balance of professional and personal integrity. You know, how much am I willing to to share to keep you guys inspired that I am still fishing? But without blowing you guys up for the sake of vanity or business, exactly. You know, and at the end of the day, and I try to. I don't. I never. I didn't coin this right, but I thought oh, a couple of years ago, I like made the sixty second rule, and the sixty second rule for me was if I have a conscious thought before I die, and I have sixty seconds to think about it, the things that I've made an impact in this life is this going to go in there or not? You know, and if it means that your integrity, if you at the end of the day say, I'm not going to post fish pictures no matter what happens, if I become irrelevant for holding my integrity close to me and I teach my daughter and I inspire some people along the way, if you can feel good about that and that thought goes into your last 60 seconds on this earth, then I think it's worth doing. Yeah. I mean, for me, my 60 seconds, I want to inspire people to be outside. And if it means holding up some fish, sure, but it's sure shit is not going to be every fish. Right. I wouldn't have thought of myself as becoming irrelevant um, by not holding any fish, but I get it. And my integrity has no problem holding up and sharing the experience of some fish, but it's not going to be every fish. I'm sorry. I just I, I have other things to be paying attention to in the moment than taking a picture. Absolutely. Do you feel like people that are just getting into the sport have to have that affirmation? Like, hey man, I'm good enough to do this. This is why. I think that they need more affirmation proving that they know how to make the cast and make the presentation and understand entomology and understand fish behavior because that's what it used to be like. Back in the day, you you could be on every cover of a magazine, but you were just a poster girl until you went and spoke at clubs right? and let people pepper you with questions and right. you could find the right answers. But yeah, I think there's an element of people thinking that they need to have the affirmation. I think there's more of an element of them feeling like they need to drive likes and follows and they can do so by showing a picture of a fish. Like I'll show a picture of me fishing and get, I don't know, 2,000 likes, say whatever, right? Right. I'll have a picture of me holding a fish and I'll get 12,000 likes. Totally. I personally don't give a shit at the the difference in 10,000 likes, but... Companies do. Yep. And and that unfortunately plays a major role in business today. So it's a matter of I battle with if I disappear entirely, how many people am I going to reach? Why do I care about reaching those people? Well, I want to inspire them to get outside. Absolutely. That makes it that matters to me. Yep. And and does it bother me that that someone else might be getting I mean, I, I don't want the people who are reaching people doing it for the wrong reasons. And I don't I really don't care if they're doing it for the wrong reasons within themselves. I don't want them giving people the wrong ideas. Yes. Right? And so I would rather go out there and, and show my social media and 
the experience and all of the trials and tribulations that go along with catching that fish and and have them see it as a reality rather than only having them go scroll through my feed and see hundreds and hundreds of fish pictures. Does that make so, sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. So so it's I feel I guess with all of that to say this in summary. I feel like if I disappear entirely, I I won't be able to do as much good as if I do stay relevant. And if that means I have to post the occasional fish picture to stay relevant, then I will because I know that I can do more by being in the light than I can if I'm not in it. Sure. Especially Absolutely. with all these, we've got some major things happening right now with the conservation world. And like, yep. you know, I just joined the board of the Wild Salmon Center. And let's get real, I'm not on there because of money. They didn't nominate me because I've got lots of money and they didn't nominate me because I'm a scientist. They they want me on there because I have a reach. Yep. And it's not a reach in showing how pretty I am. They want me to reach people with a message. And that's what I want to do too. So yeah, I'll post a, pit, a fish picture if it keeps you guys watching. But just know my message is a lot bigger than that fish. Well, as long as that, if you feel like you're holding your integrity through that process, then there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Absolutely. No, always. I understand your struggle with that though. Like why, why the fish? But it's a struggle, right? Yeah. Why is that so interesting to yeah. people? What, what, what about that picture is so engaging to you guys? Uh, and I still haven't wrapped my head around that yet. And I'm 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 slowly trying to understand this social media world, but it, we can't deny it. You know, at the end of the day, it's a tool, and it's a tool that that can do some really great things. Yes, yes. Um, from a photography stance, what's harder for you to to take pictures of fishing or hunting? I think the story. If the story is compelling, it's really easy. If the story is really hard to tell, if there's no story there, and I'm just polishing turds. Like that, sorry, that's the best way I can possibly describe it. That's that's the difficulty. So fishing or hunting doesn't really matter. Like I want to see an original story, someone with some depth, some grit, and something compelling. You know, something something to be remarked over. You don't find it difficult shooting in a boat? How do you guys tell stories? Oh yeah, that's an. I mean, yeah, it's really hard to shoot. And but in a tree stand, sit in a tree stand. There's no. There's only so many angles you can tell. So you tell the story of why you're in that tree, or you tell the story of why you're in the boat, or standing in the bank of the river. You know, that's a different story because that can get really like interesting depending on where you're standing. But um, tell the story of who, who's behind the rod, who's behind the bow. That's the each and every one of us is original. We all have a story, you know. And it's it's if we can find somebody that's willing to tell their story, that's my job is to tell to tell it in an intriguing visual way, and that's what I feel good at. I feel like I can see those. I like photographing the people that don't want to be photographed. Those are the people I'm looking for. The person that says, "Come, you dude, come check out how cool my shit is," like Johnny Smooth. I don't want to photograph you. I want to photograph the person that says, "I don't really want it, you to see what I have." But then I have to convince them that they can really inspire some people. You know what I mean? We did that Ibex piece this year for Sitka. I drew um, twice in one year the New Mexico Ibex tag, Persian Ibex, which is a feat in itself, right? It was a compelling story because of the process. I took my best friend down there. He spotted for me. He's got a family with three. There's a story. You could do a story just on his wife. Like, how do you manage watching kids, like saying, go ahead and go hunting with your buddy. You're not even going to bring home meat for this family, but you're going to go support your friend for... 15 to 20 days. He was there for 20 days and I'll watch the kids. I'll make that sacrifice. When I missed my opportunities that month, I wasn't just telling bucks, sorry, man, I'm so sorry. I practiced as much as I could. I'm sorry. I missed that shot. I had to, I, I was calling his wife and saying, Jenny, 
I got to keep your husband a little longer. Like, I don't know how you're juggling three kids right now, but he's got to stay a little longer. We're here and I got to keep trying and I'm sorry. You know, so much pressure. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a compelling story from that point into my, I wasn't successful. I made a bronze with my mother, which is a great, great experience for her and I just to have that time together. But then to draw the tag again, to make a long story short, I draw the tag twice in one year. I made a bronze sculpture of an Ibex because I never thought I'd draw the tag again. So if anything, if I wasn't successful harvesting one, then, or I'm sorry, I keep using that word harvest. I'm not harvesting anything. I wasn't successful killing one. So I wanted to make a bronze to remember the moment. So I make this with my mom, which was an amazing experience for her and I. And then to draw the tag again, that's where I went to Sitka and was like, we got to tell this story. And it's not about me branding myself or like, hey world, look how cool Brett Sang is. It wasn't about that. It was about announcing this is a really compelling story about just having some faith in yourself, how to prepare for your second chance. It was a, it was a redemption story. And so we ran with it. I think that we've been successful with it. I hope people thought of, saw it and felt like if they had met me, they would f- see no difference between what they saw on that film and what you get when you have a one-on-one face-to-face conversation with me. I want them to feel the same. But what I'm getting to is, is some of the kids were like, hey man, where's your YouTube channel? Or like, when, can't wait to see your next hunt. They comment about that. And I, I would say, there isn't going to be one. There isn't a YouTube channel. And I'm not using this as a platform to put myself up any further. <laughs> it was just a compelling story that I could tell. Did you get one? I did. You did? I did. The, the second day, the first, pretty much the first time we went up there. Oh, yeah, so Stephen Drake with was the, with me to, to film it. With your best friend again? Uh, yeah, Buck went back with me. And yeah. he got to go back to his wife after one day or two days? Yeah, and she, we came back early and she's like, dude, I had this whole thing like scheduled out. What are you doing here early? <laughs> she's, a, she's, an, she's such a trooper. Yeah. She's a total badass. She should have like a wife camp, you know? It's like, no this shit. is how you do this. She understands that her husband needs balance in his life. Oh. And that for if he can't come home to be the father she needs him to be and to be the husband he needs to be without going and being the man he needs to be. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Men- she needs to start like a like a, a husband camp because it's the opposite in my family. <laughs> but Charles, that's what I'm always telling Charles. Like, you need to let me do this or else I can't be myself. Yes. My yes. happy self. We have to we have to have, feel adventure. We have to pursue in life. And it, it, we're really lucky to have the to have steelhead and elk as part of our lives. That's what we feel that we can clean the slate with. And to wrap it around photography, if ever I feel like that's wearing on that passion, photography will go to the side. Absolutely. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 